Tonight I want to talk about how the first foundation of mindfulness, the theme of this retreat, connects with, opens into, really is a doorway into the entire four foundations of mindfulness. I don't know anyone here, any of you well. One thing I can say for certain is true for every one of us here. Every one of us want to or trying to, whether it's conscious or not, are trying to have more of what we want in life and less of what we don't want. We're all trying to have more pleasant experiences and less unpleasant experiences, right? Anybody here trying to have less of what you want and more of what you don't want? Right. Anyone here trying to have more unpleasant experiences and less pleasant experiences? No. And we all laugh because of course that's true. We're human beings. So it's not a judgment. It's just really part of how it is to be a living being. You know, if you take single cell organisms like an amoeba, there'll be certain stimuli that they like and they go towards, you know, certain food. And if you put whatever they don't like, if they don't like light, and you know, they'll go away from it. So it's deeply, I guess, hardwired into us as living beings to operate this way. So that's fine. And so what is it that's true for most of us as human beings most of the time? We go about the business of heading our lives into, again, it may be conscious or unconscious, the way we want it to go. So we may have some idea of what we want life to look like. You know, it's around relationships or money or the kind of work we do or our health, living situations, whatever it is. And we may actually have an idea of what a good life would look like. We certainly, it's not hard to think about what like not such a good life would look like, right? We can all imagine that. And so we're about go about the business, which is probably what most of us spend most of our time doing. Again, it's not a judgment. It's just that's probably true for most people doing with our time. Probably with some sense of if we could just get all the pieces to come together right, maybe we'd be happy. Right? So and we can have some happiness, right? If you if having pleasant experiences can it, and it does bring a satisfaction and happiness in the moment, right? So that's that's an okay strategy, except for one thing. Two things really. One, as we all know, life is uncertain. We can't completely control life. Right? We're all trying our best, and you can look into your own life. For most of us, it's probably some mix of getting what you want and getting what you don't want. Gain and loss, pleasure, pain, right? It's a mix. Some of us may have more suffering and some of us, you know, weighted more towards the suffering in any given time in our lives. And for some of us, maybe weighted more towards happiness or pleasure, but it's a mix. So first problem with the strategy of having our happiness or well-being tied up into having to have life look a certain way is that it's not always, we know it's not going to go our way all the time. And sometimes, despite our best efforts, it's going to go really how we don't want it. So that's the first problem with that strategy is that our well-being and happiness is then up to the, I was going to say, the whims of life or the vicissitudes of life. So it's kind of a tenuous situation we find ourselves in at best. But it's worse than that. Even if you could set up your life to be whatever your perfect situation was, if you could do that? Well, Buddha talks about impermanence. None of it's going to last. 
So it could, it could, you know, if you could set up your perfect life somehow, it probably would feel pretty good for a while. But it's destined to change. Nothing lasts forever. So even if you could do that, which I'm thinking, I think is problematic, but even if you could, it's not going to ultimately do it for us. It could help us in the moment, but it's ultimately going to solve our problem. So we find ourselves in this situation of looking for well-being or our welfare or our happiness in circumstances that are bound to leave us unfulfilled or dissatisfied at some level. So the Buddha pointed this out. And one way you might think of Buddhist teachings is making a shift in, in our relationship with ourselves, with our experience, and with life. Rather than our happiness or well-being being completely dependent or caught up with, again, what the experience is that we're having or not having, we start to make a shift, and it becomes more about how are we relating with or being with whatever experience we happen to be having. So it becomes less about the experience itself and more about our relationship with the experience. And so a question for us, it's maybe it's, it's, it's a koan or, or just an exploration for all of us is, can we find some place of peace, happiness, or sometimes we use the words liberation or freedom. We'll come back to that in a bit. Because what does that mean? We keep talking about liberation and freedom. So what are we talking about? Is it possible to find that in the midst of, the, you know, these are these Dharma cliches we say, the, but they're cliches because they're true. We say them over and over. In the midst of the way things are. The answer for most of us is going to be, to some extent we can, but there'll be plenty of experiences that'll be too much for us, and really we can't. So that's what we're working on. We're deepening and strengthening the place that can rest clear and awake, so mindful and clearly knowing or clearly comprehending, with some degree of equanimity, where the mind is more quiet and the heart is more open, that's not totally dependent on circumstances. That's sort of a place maybe we're heading. And a lot of what we're doing here when we practice is we come into the meditation hall and we sit down and we tell you, make yourself comfortable. Find some, the posture. We don't even tell you how to sit. You can go lie down if you want. Take it easy. Don't be too hard on yourself. And all you have to do is sit here and pay attention to whatever's happening. You don't even have to make anything happen. And look how hard that can be, just to be present with ourselves. So we have our work cut out for us, right? In, according to Theravada Buddhist tradition, the third discourse that the Buddha gave last night Bob talked about the first discourse which was setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma and the second discourse on no self or not self which of course that's a big topic what, what is meant by that the third discourse is uh, known as the fire sermon and basically in it the Buddha said all of our experience is on fire and it was metaphorically obviously not literally on but he's using a metaphor is on fire with three fires, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so the greed means any, it's a strong word, but it, it, it's the wanting mind. If there's a pleasant experience and the mind wants it, that's the greed. That's just what it means. And we say hatred, again, a very strong word. It's the opposite. It's the wanting to get rid of. If it's unpleasant, it's aversion, wanting to push away. And the delusion is not seeing or knowing or understanding or experiencing life really as it is. And that's a lot of what we're doing here with the 32 parts of the body practices, starting to get underneath the surface appearance of things. And when we get to four elements, we keep getting subtler and subtler 
See, what's more real and true? We're trying to break the enchantment, if you will. You know, there's this idea of the fairy tales, and when you're, we often think of the word disenchanted as kind of disappointed or let down. It can have that meaning, but really, in the fairy tales, so they would, I don't know, they cast a spell, and you're enchanted, and so you're, you, you don't see reality. And then the spell is broken, the enchantment is broken, and you just see more things, just clearly what's actually real. So this idea of liberation that the Buddha was pointing to, or enlightenment, if you're in the Theravada tradition, fully enlightened, you're a Buddha, what, it's called nirvana in Sanskrit, or nibbana in Pali. Once the Buddha dies, what that is, is undefined. But while you're still alive in this life, it's a simple idea. It's, it's an extinguishing, a blowing out, the term nirvana, nibbana means blowing out of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So conceptually, simple. To actualize that in our lives, not simple. What would, it, what would life look like if lived from a place freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not talking about being numb or gray or not experiencing or feeling our life. In quite, I would say it's exactly the opposite. If we're able to really be awake and clear and present for the experience of our lives, we're going to feel and experiencing things more. We just won't be caught in reactivity, but we'll actually be more present. My wife once came home from, I think she was here at IMS, she had sat about four or five month long retreat, and she's a long time meditator, and she came home from the retreat, said, well, how's your retreat? And the first thing she said to me was, you know, you know, I, I don't know if this uh, Vipassana meditation is, is all that great. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, are you kidding? Are you serious? Are you joking? She said, well, I'm kind of kidding, but it's like, do I have to feel everything? Do I have to be aware of everything? <laughs> She was waking up to the full race. So she's kind of being humorous, but pointing to that we wake up to the full experience of our lives more than ever. But hopefully with a place underneath that of equanimity. That's the place that's not buffeted around by things so much. Right? What the Buddha pointed to was this uh, chain of causation. I'll just mention it briefly, where because we have sense organs, we can hear things, smell things, touch, the whole, all the sensory inputs, we make contact with experience. And because of that, there will be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral qualities that we experience. That was what Bob was talking about this morning, right? Because of pleasant, unpleasant, or neut neutral, but mainly focusing on the pleasant, unpleasant, it gives rise, it doesn't directly cause, but let's just say, we'll just say gives rise to craving in the mind. People think that um, Buddhism wants you to get rid of desire, but that's, that's not correct. Desire is actually talked about a lot in certain ways. There's a particular kind of desire, craving, which is what we're talking about. Craving means get rid of unpleasant, want more pleasant. And because of that craving, it, it gives rise or conditions the mind to, for your clinging, holding on, and that clinging is the problem. And so we talk about a liberation through non-clinging. There's something that happens where a letting go happens in the mind. And it's in that letting go that something really beautiful and profound and deep from within is revealed. And it's the place of non-clinging. So that's where the practice is heading. So if that's what we're interested in is finding a different way to to live, not from the point of view from, of dilemma, but living from the point of view of freedom or liberation, what is it that serves us? What is it that supports the liberation? It's insight. 
In our tradition, it's insight. That's vipassana. And traditionally, it's talked about, and Bob mentioned this last night, so I'm going to also say it briefly. It's talked about insight into what are called the three characteristics of existence. That's a pretty heavy-duty sounding phrase. And so we actually come to, we use the word see or know or experience or live experientially from the place as part of a living reality of impermanence. If we really got it about impermanence, that's in support of, of of the freeing the mind from clinging. So that's where the insight is coming in. Or the second characteristic, dukkha, and as Bob pointed out, sort of the etymology of the word is it's like a wheel that's out of kilter. You know, even when things are going well, it's like something, it's that feeling of even when things are well, something's missing. I'm just not there. I don't know what there is, but it's not this. But dukkha. Your knee's not even hurting, but there's still something just. Eh. Right? It's, I consider it a privilege to suffer in that way, by the way. I really do. You know, if you're in Haiti, you don't notice that level of suffering. A lot of things have to be going very, very well and coming together in your life to see the subtler level of, wow, I've got everything, and this isn't it. That's a subtler level. So it's a real privilege, to, I think, to suffer in that way. And let's not gloss over that. And, you know, we often think, oh, you know, where's the meaning in my life, whatever. It's like if we can really stop and hold it in perspective for the billions of people in this world who maybe can't even have easy access to clean drinking water. So it's really, a, I mean that sincerely, you know. So here we are. We get to work on a, another level, right? Hopefully you do have clean drinking water. You know, I don't know all your situations. And then this third idea of selflessness, and I'll just have to say a little something about it. It's not saying that you don't exist, for those of you who are newer to Dharma teachings, because obviously you do have a self. The Buddha was uh, uh, actually talking about the Brahmanical idea of his time that we have a permanent eternal essence that was called Atman, and so in Sanskrit, the no self is the anatman. It's, it basically is saying we exist, but what's, what's our true nature? And as a good friend of mine once said, the way to think of it is we exist, but we're not nouns, we're verbs. In other words, our own being is composed of changing processes. So there's a lot, that's a lifetime of study and practice to come into this idea of no self, but we'll just leave it at that for now. And if if that doesn't all connect for you, just kind of let that go out of your mind. So insight is in service of enlightenment or liberation. What is it that's in service of the development of insight? It's the four foundations of mindfulness in our tradition. We've been, we're focusing on the first foundation. So what I'd like to do now is, I want to very briefly, and this won't do justice to it, I'm gonna name all the parts of the four four foundations of mindfulness. Let's just be very, very brief, just so you've heard it. And then what I wanna do is go back to the first foundation and see how it all connects together. Just by doing the first foundation of mindfulness, how it really opens up into the whole thing. So as I go through this, and again, it's really a lifetime of study and practice to understand the sutta. Um, for those that most, many of you won't know this, please don't try to remember this. I mean, seriously, I'm, I'm inviting you, I'm requesting, I'm suggesting that you just let it come through. You've heard it, it'll wash through. You won't remember most of it. If you stick around the Dharma scene for any amount of time, you'll hear all of this over and over many times, and it's, you start to learn it, or you may choose then to actually study it formally. So, so please don't tr- try to remember it. And also, I'm gonna come back to, to this piece that's important. 
it's going to sound like a lot that can stir up the mind. Well, I can't do all of this. There's too much. And I'll explain how we want to hold it because you're right. You can't do all of this at once and you're not expected to. So don't let that uh, cause you any um, uh, trouble. Okay. So there's these four foundations of mindfulness. First foundation we've already named, I'll name it again, is the mindfulness of the body. And there's six practices. Mindfulness of breathing. That actually has four steps, but that, <laughs> it just goes on and on with these lists. Mindfulness of breathing. Second is mindfulness of four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Third is mindfulness in all activities. Fourth is what we're doing now is the parts of the body. Fifth is what are called the four elements. We will be doing that this weekend also. I'll say more about that in a bit. And the sixth um, we call um, contemplations on death. But um, maybe I'll just leave it at that for now. <laughs> we'll say more about it. It's actually, well, I'm going to just say it. Um, now, don't go crazy here, but it's because uh, we're going to be doing some of this, but um, they're actually, it's actually not just contemplation depth. death. It's uh, a corpse in nine stages of decay. So that may trigger some stuff up in you. We're not bringing a corpse in here, but I'm telling you, uh, um, so everybody just be relaxed. Nothing's going to be too intense. But um, that is actually what the practice is in there. And so I'll come back in a few moments and talk about, well, why would you, what's that all about? So just let that sit there for now. So those, that's mindfulness of the body. Second foundation, Bob mentioned this morning, is called Vedana in the Pali and feeling tone. Doesn't refer to emotions the way we might often use feelings. It refers to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral we call it feeling tone or quality that accompanies any experience. So if you're sitting here and you have knee pain, there's the actual experience of the knee pain, aching, stabbing, burning, whatever it is, tearing. And there's the fact that it's unpleasant. That's what it's talking about. Third foundation of mindfulness is uh, chittas, it's generally states of the mind and the heart, and there's a specific list that's given. It's not thoughts, it's knowing the presence or, or absence, you know those three fires I mentioned, greed, hatred, and delusion? Here they're called kalesas, it means defilements, but uh, knowing if each one of those, if they're present in the mind or not. And there's a few others in the list, knowing if the mind's concentrated or not, the mind's contracted, the mind's liberated. There's just a set list. It's really talking about the attitude of mind we bring towards our experience. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is a big one. And it contains five lists of important lists. And I'm just going to name them real quickly. And again, this you'll see why. You shouldn't try to remember, remember all of this, but I just want you to have heard it. It's a lot. Talks about what are called the five hindrances. Five hindrances we've already been talking about. When you're suffering here on retreat, probably one of the five hindrances is up. The mind's caught in the, the greed, the wanting, the aversion, wanting to get rid of. Sloth and torpor, you're too dull or sleepy. Restlessness and remorse, you're too agitated. And skeptical doubt, those are the five hindrances. Again, I, I'm quite aware of going through this quickly because I haven't even gotten to the main part of, the, of what the topic about is about is how all this fits in with the first foundation of mindfulness. So I just want to name it quickly. But it's not just the five hindrances, it's knowing something special about them, knowing not only when the hindrances are present or not, but being aware of what are the things that tend to get, cause the hindrance to arise and, and, and being skillful about knowing what sort of, if the hindrance is there, what 
can make, get rid of it and, or bring the intensity down and also knowing what will prevent it from arising. So it's actually bringing some wisdom in. And the next uh, list is what are called the five aggregates. And I won't go through them, but it's a way of, it's another way of deconstructing what we are into, as human beings into five parts, depersonalizing it. Then there's what's called the six sense bases. And basically we have our senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and touch is body sensation. And the sixth is the we call the mind, because it's another doorway through which we have experience, the experiences of the mind, the six senses. And it's not only knowing, like when you're seeing, being mindful of the fact of seeing. So you're already doing some of these practices, right? when you're hearing, being mindful of hearing, etc. But also knowing what, they use this word fetter, but it's, being, it's knowing in relationship to each of these senses, what are the things that really get us hooked and reactive and caught? And an example, we always talk about, you know, if there's somebody you have aversion towards in the food line, because they're whatever, they're going too slow, well, you know if you see that person and if it's going to bring aversion up, you're wise and skillful and maybe you wait till they're through the line to go through so you don't see them. Just, I don't know, that's an example, right? There's the seven factors of enlightenment, which are these, I won't name them all, but these qualities that are very important. They're all beautiful, uh, wholesome qualities and knowing how to strengthen them. And then the last is the uh, Four Noble Truths and coming to really understand the Four Noble Truths. So that's the four foundations of mindfulness. And as I said, right, there's a lot there. Okay. So now let's go back to the first foundation of mindfulness. And let's, well, actually the first thing I would like to do is say just briefly a few words about some of the different ways that you can practice four foundations of mindfulness. And this will also apply to first foundation because it will help us understand how they all fit together. One way you can practice is people will pick a particular piece and that will be the foundation of their whole practice. 32 parts of the body would be an example. That could be your foundational practice or breath meditation, for example, or four elements meditation under mindfulness of the body. There are people who might focus on the third foundation paying attention to, of course, our experience, but mostly on the attitudes of mind that we're bringing. And that could be your whole practice. Or you could bring mindfulness into the fourth foundation and paying attention to through the six senses. And really, it's going back to the mindfulness of the body, right? Smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, all of that, being aware there. So you could pick just, and I just named a few, you could pick those. And, and then you may still work with others, but pick one. That's one way to work with it. Another way you can work with it is you can st work more systematically. Start with mindfulness of breathing, as we're doing here. The mind begins to settle. Now you have a little more stability and mindfulness. So we're able to be mindful of more, four postures now. Keep deepening. Oh, now I'm able to expand out and be more mindful in all activities. You can see how it can progress like that. Now I'm able to, to bring in a second foundation on pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, because the strength of the mindfulness and the concentration, the stability of mind is, to, is such that I'm able to work with it and hold it all. And even subtler now is being aware of the states of the mind. Right? And then it can open up more as we're naturally more aware um, of all these different aspects in the, you know, we notice more what's in the fourth foundation. If a hindrance is up, we tend to notice it and how to work with it. Or with the six senses, and if there's a place we get hooked, and all these different areas, we come to know them more. So we work systematically in an ever subtler progression. That's another way. There's a bunch of ways. I'll just name one other way. This is the way I happen to practice. And by the way, 
These are all good ways. It's not that one is right or wrong. It's finding which way works best for each one of us. Another way you can work is that it's said that mindfulness of breathing alone fulfills the whole, all the foundations of mindfulness. How could that be? Through mindfulness of breathing, the mind settles, the concentration deepens, it can go quite deep. Actually can take you to these specialized meditative states you may have heard of called jhana. And at the same time, the awareness just opens up and you're naturally, oh, the body awareness is there, the vedana is there, states of the mind and the heart, it's all more present in this choiceless awareness. So that's, that's another way to practice. And that takes me now to, to the main point really I wanted to convey in this talk of how the first foundation connects, practicing with it connects to all the foundations. It's not just mindfulness of breathing that can in and of itself open up to the, all the foundations of mindfulness. Wherever you plug in is a doorway into everything else. It really should be thought of like a hologram. So if any of you are physicists out here, and please forgive me because I may not say this technically in an accurate way, but you know if you have a hologram, right? It's a 3D image. If you cut the hologram in half, each piece contains the whole image, and you can keep cutting it, right? So every piece contains the whole. That analogy breaks down because I think the image degrades of the hologram the more you cut it, so you know, it, it, but you get the idea. That's not true for four foundations of mindfulness. So it, what's interesting is that if we develop these two qualities together, the ability of the mind to be settled and clear and undistracted, that's the samadhi or what we call concentration, but I like to just say undistractedness or stability of mind. So we deepen that. And right along with it, we're strengthening or deepening the mindfulness. It doesn't matter then so much what the object is, if you will, that we're being mindful of. We can connect with anywhere, and we will. You probably are already doing that in your practice here, right? Sometimes you're aware of breath. Sometimes there's emotions up. Sometimes hindrances are up, you're have, or the calaises, you're having aversion or greed. and you know we, we really get to work with it all. You can't avoid it. We're actually always doing four foundations of mindfulness practice because it's all there. When we're working with 32 parts of the body, there may or may not be pleasant or unpleasant arising for you. And we keep talking about be on the lookout for it, paying attention. You may or may not have reactivity of aversion, hatred, pushing away something unpleasant, or wanting to hold on to something really pleasant. There are states of the mind and the heart. Right? Maybe inputs coming in through some of the senses. Maybe you're having mental image. That's, that's a visual. It's not coming in through the eyes. Or it could be body reactions, touch, sense, whatever. There's a lot going on when we just focus on one thing. And this is the way, in, this is why mindfulness of the body is one among many doorways that opens up into the, we're really doing the whole four foundations of mindfulness here. So is that clear? Yeah. So then um, let me just say a few things specifically about the three special practices that we're doing on this retreat. And just a few, that'll be the, to, to end this, this talk. So. You may have already answered what I'm about to ask you. That's a rhetorical question you don't have to answer, but um, why would someone practice 32 parts of the body meditation? What, what's the purpose? Right. Well, I can't give you one answer. We each have our own answer. We, but let me just name a few possibilities. Bob's been talking uh, very clearly and beautifully about this basic idea of looking 
clearly and directly at the body's true nature, right? So that's part of it, seeing more deeply. We were talking about this idea of enchantment before and being disenchanted, not that that means anything repulsive or negative, but, but breaking the enchantment to see what's actually real and true. In service of insight, in service of a liberation through non-clinging. So if I'm identified with the body and I start to break it down, and I, you know, when you go and you look in the mirror and you, there's your face, and yep, that's me. Well, which part is you? Spleen? Bile? Teeth? Right? So you can see how powerful this practice can be in breaking the clinging or identification with the body. And this runs deep. Um, in California, they renew driver's licenses every five years. And so, you know, you go into the Department of Motor Vehicles and they take your picture and you have your driver's license. So I had mine done, I think it was maybe 35 years old. And then the next two times I got it renewed, they did it by mail. I didn't have to have a new picture. So five years, I send in my check. They send me a another driver's license, same old picture. Five years later, send it back. It's a 10-year-old picture, but I'm looking at it. And, yep, that's me. <laughs> You'd think I would have noticed that when I, what I'm looking at in the mirror and what I'm seeing on the driver's license, there's a little bit, but no, it didn't register. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I look like. <laughs> then the third time, I had to go in and get a new picture, 15 years uh, after that picture. So I go get the picture. A few weeks later, the new driver's license come in. So, you know, I... No big deal. I pulled out the old one to throw it away and pull out the new one. And it's just like, who is that old guy? Do I really look like that? And I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> and I just thought, where did my youth go? Where did it go? Don't know. But it's gone. So when I look in the mirror now, I see a 57-year-old face looking back. Is that me? If we're clinging to the body, right, we're either suffering or setting the conditions for future suffering because we know ahead of time. Bob and I were talking about this early. We know ahead of time. It's not a surprise. The body is going to get old. It's not like to depress us, right, or to freak us out. It's just the way it is. Body's going to get sick. I, I remember when I was in my young, this really younger years, I was a very active rock climber for many years. I was a pretty decent climber in my day. Done a lot of big walls, you know, multi-day and Yosemite and all that stuff. And I was a pretty good climber. And I remember once we were at the base of a cliff and getting ready to climb and was talking to my friend and we looked up and we noticed, you know, you really don't see many older people out here. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you know, you get older, your body doesn't work. And I remember saying, Tim, that's not going to be me. I'm going to keep it up. I'm not going to lose it. And so, and what happens? One day you start like, you know, man, my, I tweaked my elbow or I'm starting to tear a ligament more, or I get more prone to injury. Or what I hadn't counted on, you know, my testosterone level went down, you know, to zero, and I didn't want to climb up those anymore. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, this is scary, and it's hard. <laughs> it's not fun at all. And I'm not trying to impress anybody anymore. Really, I just want to... You know, I'd much rather sit on the couch and watch an old movie. <laughs> Things changed, right? So if I'm clinging to the body, it's a setup for suffering. If I can rest somehow at peace, oh, I forgot to add, we know ahead of time the body's going to get old. We know ahead of time the body's going to get sick. We know ahead of time that we're going to die and all, everyone we know is going to die. It's not a surprise. I mean, we, it will, it, we live as if it's a surprise. We know this. 
I'm not saying it's an easy thing because what I was talking to Bob about is just the poignancy of some death and loss. And even though we do know ahead of time and we spend years practicing, it still is painful and hard. It, we're human beings. And there's this story of, uh, we couldn't remember where, but of where Sariputta, who'd been one of the Buddha's uh, two chief disciples, died, of, I think it was a few months before the Buddha died, and somewhere where there's a quote, I'm pretty sure where the Buddhist, when he heard about Sariputta dying, he said, you know, it's as if the sun or the moon had gone out. This is the Buddha. So we're human beings. We need a lot of compassion for ourselves. We're here in the human condition. Right? So we know ahead of time. We practice the best we can in what supports us to liberate the mind, to open our hearts in love, to quiet our minds, to live as free from clinging as we can. So it's not judging us or saying, oh, you foolish person, Don't, didn't you know, why are you reacting? Didn't you know? You know, yes, it, it, it hurts when, when there's this loss. It hurt, you know, I'm still trying to deal with, I was telling Bob, I'm, can you see this spot on my arm right there? That's an age spot. <laughs> and more of them are starting to pop out. And I'm just like, well, damn. <laughs> well, and I thought, you know, don't they have some kind of laser that like zap those off? <laughs> and then I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not going to zap those off. I sit here and you know, I give talks on this, right? The body's going to get old, but sure enough, I get one. What do I want to do? I want to zap it off. <laughs> I'm keeping those. That's my teacher. And more teachers come all the time. You know, some days I wake up and for no reason, no apparent reason, something just hurts. Body just, you know, and it doesn't do what I tell it to do, right? It just goes right along. The more we come to, to know that the body's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, ultimately, it's not self, it's that letting go that gives rise to the liberation and also gives rise to a lot of compassion and care for ourselves. You know, when we realize you know, that those who are dear to us are going to die, my experience is it actually makes my heart open and hold them even closer. You can see how that is for you. And hopefully when we reflect on that for ourselves too, it can really give rise to love and compassion. That's what we're doing here. Same thing about these um, practices of which we haven't named yet, so you won't know what this is, but what's called four elements meditation, which is really, so we don't have much time here, but let's just do a quick experiment. Can I invite you to close your eyes for a moment? And don't do anything special. Just let yourself have your experience. You listen to my voice as you're, as you're sitting there with your eyes closed. And this may not be easy to do for long, but if just for a few moments you can drop the concepts about your experience and just let the raw experience flow, you get a sense of the four elements. There's just pressure, vibration. It's not like my leg, my arm, right? There's temperature, there's breathing, there's liquidity, there's solid feelings. And so you could open your eyes if you want. You can keep going if you want. So that gives you an idea, we'll say a lot more about this, four elements is looking even more deeply, more subtly into the nature of our experience when we take the concepts out, just the raw experience, going really more directly to reality, even a whole other level. And then um, lastly, I mentioned these, what are called charnel ground contemplations. This is a tricky area. You know, uh, it's not for everyone in the Buddha. They actually talk about if you're going to go to a charnel ground, which we don't have access in our culture, where they are the decomposing bodies. Um, it's not for everyone. You need a lot of support and make sure you're psychologically stable. And there's, you know, because it can be disconcerting to say the least, right? But 
there may be for some people reasons why rather than just bringing up more fear, which could happen for some people, it could actually be quite liberating when we actually can just look clearly objectively to, well, what is it that happens? What is it that happens? So everybody calm down where you don't have to worry. About, maybe I shouldn't have named that a little ahead of time. I, I don't know if that was wise or skillful, actually. But the cat's, <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. But what we'll do here is it's really more of a contemplation around death. And it's going to be safe. And so just everybody have a lot of trust. Everything's going to be safe and gentle. But really, in the sutta, it's, it's pretty graphic. So that may not be the practice for everyone, right? But you can see how it could be very powerful in service of letting go of, of an identification when we, with the body when we see. Again, it's not, nothing going wrong. It's just a natural, most natural thing. There's never been any living creature on earth for whom it was not true. So we'll say more later. I just want to name why we might engage in these. And you can also see how, um, you see I'm already feeling protective here of everyone on the retreat about how I'm talking about this because it can bring up second foundation of mindfulness, unpleasant, or it can bring up aversion, or right, these things can come up. So if that is happening already, we haven't even done the practice yet. And I've even told you, don't worry, it's going to be safe and gentle and it's not going to, don't let your worst fears spin out or anything. It's going to be fine. And still, you may already have some stuff coming up. There's four foundations of mindfulness right there. So please take a moment, if you have not already been doing this, let your mindfulness connect into your body. Notice what's going on. Maybe how's your belly doing? Is it soft or is it tense? How are your shoulders and your neck? How's your breathing? Third foundation of mindfulness, states of the mind and heart. One way to think of that is how are we relating with our experience? Just notice how it is. If there is some place that's contracted or struggling or that's not at ease, even if the experience is unpleasant, see if you can soften. This is that idea of shifting how we're relating to our experience, which we talked about at the beginning of the talk. We do the best we can. Sometimes we, we really want to and something doesn't want to let go around it and we still are in a struggle. Then we back up and we bring some acceptance to the place in us that can't let go and that's suffering. And to end, um, I want to mention something that I brought up in one of the interview groups today. Traditionally, the foundation of Dharma practice is considered in Pali, it's sila, it's, it's morality. And it was, for example, the five precepts that we took when we started the retreat. It's living in a way that produces less suffering and harm for ourselves and others, and more happiness and well-being for ourselves and others. It's wise action and speech and all of that. That's considered foundational. And of course, then from that base of, of moral living and action, we can meditate and do all these other practices. I would like to offer, this is not in the text, this is just my own. What for me, I really feel is more foundational and that even the sila builds on that, and that's self-compassion. And I really feel that that should be the starting point. And we don't have to be good at it. 
and for many of us, a few people have shared today that they tend to have more critical minds and that's probably many of us can relate to that. So it may not be easy, but we take that on as an intention or an aspiration to move more towards being able to have some kindness for ourselves, some care, some compassion, some love. And then from that place, then we can undertake the moral action without the judgment about how good or bad we think we're doing it or you know, and all the suffering that can be created there. And we carry that further then into you know, our meditation practice without the judging. So I wanna leave you with something that's very simple, but I think is actually very, very profound. Back in the late 60s, or maybe the early 70s, uh, at least on the West Coast in Berkeley where I was living, there, was, there were these posters up of this Indian guru named Meher Baba. Some of you are old enough to remember. He had this big bushy mustache, this huge grin. And it, all it said was, don't worry, be happy. And I remember at the time, I was actually in the Hindu yoga tradition at the time, before I'd moved into the Buddhist world, and I was living in a yoga ashram, and I was all in this, kind of had this young guy, kind of more intense, and I would look at that and I thought, well, you know, I mean, it's nice, but it's kind of like, I don't know, for children or something, it's just not that deep. I couldn't appreciate the profundity. The whole Dharma's right there. So I'd like to ask you to take a moment, if you will, you can have your eyes open or close, and I'm gonna say these words and let them land. If we could really do this, it's so simple. See how it lands for you. And you could carry this through your retreat to help soften your experience if it helps. So just let the words land, okay? Don't worry. Be happy. So thank you all for listening and again for being able to spend the day with you practicing. We have, I know, a little bit more practice left to go and we went a little bit into the next walking period but you still have plenty of time so please enjoy your walking for those of you who are going to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.